Hello everyone, and welcome to the Saturn Vox Podcast, where discussions of philosophy meet the liminal space we weave in dreams. This is your host and firm believer in aesthetic vision, Michaela Ann. This week, I am welcoming artist, diviner, and fellow podcast host, J.M. Hamadi on the air to do something new and fun, wherein we have recorded two interviews as offerings to the public by means of a little episode exchange. In this particular Saturn Box conversation, Jay and I discuss magic and astrology as seen through an aesthetic lens, as well as the ontological implications of mythos building and the ways in which we structure our wellspring of the imaginal. What makes the artist and the magician such similar company? What is significant about studying planetary myths where the traditional Western style of story structure is challenged? In what ways might our ability as magicians to affect change in the world transform if we allow the imaginal to proceed and thereby inform the material? How does environment influence mythos and in what ways does it affect change onto our perspective of things otherwise assumed to maintain a fixed quality? All this and more wordsmithed with intelligence and elegance by my new friend Jay on this week's episode of Saturn Box. Once you have finished listening to the episode, don't forget to head over to Jay's podcast, A Star Night Dwell, for more conversations on star lore, divination, aesthetics, and much more from myself as well as Jay's other awe-inspiring guests. To find more on Saturn Vox, check out their Instagram at Twitter and Instagram at Saturn Vox, or visit their website, www.saturnvox.com. If you want to support the show towards goals of better equipment, merch, and bonus material, please check out the Patreon. doing well. I am uh, an artist, writer, diviner, do a lot of different things, but I think artist probably sums it up the best, focusing on a lot of talismanic artwork, uh, artwork with cross-sections in magic, uh, esotericism, that sort of thing. I just co-authored putting in an introduction, a lot of editing, and some artwork and illustrations in um, the first English release of a selected translation of Ahmed al-Buni's Shams al-Ma'arif with Revelor Press, which I'm pretty pleased with. Uh, that's been the project, the forefront of my life for the moment, and speaking a lot about that, but I'm actually really excited to talk about some other things today, hopefully, besides the book. Um, but that's pretty much the gist of it for me. Yeah, a lot of art, 
a lot of magic um, and a lot of astrology. Consequently, I don't often introduce myself as an astrologer, rather diviner, I prefer, but uh, much of my work falls within the purview of astrology, focusing primarily on lunar mansions, stars, um, and star lore. Wow, that's a lot of hats. Yeah, yeah, quite, quite, quite a few hats and socks. And socks. <laughs> <laughs> hats and hats and socks. Nothing really much in between, but. No, but I. What I like is that they all match, and I think that you're right when you say. You know, the the appropriate moniker to fit all of it in one purview is artist. Being a diviner is being an artist. Being an astrologer and weaving mythos of star lore is being an artist. And even making talismans, there's aesthetics involved in that. I, I think so. And I think that it's uh, a very undervalued, underappreciated part of the larger magical discourse, how much aesthetics and art factor into magic in general. And in, in using astrological language, which is how I tend to structure a lot of my thinking, um, I, I think a lot of magic tends to focus on more mercurial technical aspects, at least in quote unquote Western magic, uh, to the expense of a lot of what we might call Venusian kinds of magic, aesthetic forms of magic, this kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to continually uh, press those those buttons and, and lean into those areas and emphasize those kinds of things more and more um, because I think that um, we just were pretty inundated in a lot of the really technical lacking in aesthetic appreciation parts of magic and um, yeah, just just more of that. <laughs> yeah. Do you... Do you think you could expand a little bit on the way that you view the intersection between aesthetics and magic? So without getting too deeply dragged down into semantic stuff of like, what is magic? What is aesthetics? Because that could be the whole show and, and so many other shows. Like maybe there is a place for defining terms <laughs> a little bit. So in that regard, I think aesthetics being um, the the art and art form in itself of uh, making value judgments without the use of uh, formal logic, uh, things we would associate with uh, analytical kinds of, of thinking, making value judgments based on the way things perhaps make us feel which is not something that would typically be included in like a, a more analytical discourse, right? Aesthetics can incorporate that. Like this painting, this piece of music makes me feel a certain way. Mm -hmm. um, so aesthetics being able to hold both of those, a more analytical, logical, uh, for lack of a better term, left brain perspective, as well as a more right brain, like, oh, how is this making me feel? and magic dealing with spiritual entities I, th I think first and foremost for me uh, a lot of the making changes occur through um, 
ver various means that part of magic the more scientific parts of magic gets played up in western discourses i think a lot like the crowleyan definitions that kind of thing um so I, a combination of, of those two, so causing change in the world, and I would say primarily through the use of uh, interactions with spiritual beings and relationships with spiritual beings. So uh, the, the combination of those things, in particular with building relationships and uh, even let's say, having transactions with spiritual entities or non-corporeal entities uh, through aesthetic means. So not necessarily through the use of advanced symbol sets and technical diagrams and things of that nature, but like seeing how we feel about certain presences and in particular how we feel and respond to certain images so a lot of my work is based around what gets called image magic, which has a historical iteration, particularly in Islamic magical discourse, but also just the magic of images in general. And many entities have certain associations with particular images, right? Like this entity often shows up with a sickle in hand and a tiger by its side, this kind of thing. So we have certain imagistic associations with particular entities. So, you know, the meeting ground of aesthetics and magic in the same way we would look at a painting of that kind of image you know a being with certain symbols in it whatnot but but any kind of painting even a very abstract painting of squares and triangles is uh is emphasizing the way that we would use um feeling and in aesthetics oftentimes mythology and folklore and things that get put out of um more heavily analytical discourses uh, around the imagistic quality of spirits, right? Um, as well as ways that we can cause change in the world. That's the other aspect of you know, de defining magic through the use of dealing and building relationships with spirits and, and images that oftentimes are associated with those same entities. So entities who let's say very much like uh, certain kinds of oils or certain kinds of scents. Well, those, we see this in poetry, we see this in music, those scents, um, those sounds, right, uh, evoke images in our mind. You you hear poets talk about, you know, the, the scent of the, the frankincense and, and this kind of thing. That evokes an image in our mind. So as we are lighting frankincense for, let's say, a particular magical working, um, we are in an aesthetic view, leaning more into the imagistic qualities of what that is, as opposed to, um, I think, perhaps the more recipe-oriented components that would emerge in a more mercurial approach, right? Like, this is what the recipe says, this is the quantity that I'm going to use, emphasizing quantities perhaps more than qualities, that would be another distinction in, like, more analytical thinking as opposed to more aesthetic thinking about these things. Um, 
the the aesthetic magician is like uh, in the moment realizes that the the handfuls of incense this is preferred to like whatever the recipe says to evoke a certain atmosphere in the room and the handful is gonna bring a smokier atmosphere right like because you're tuned into in a very aesthetic way the atmosphere the the performance of it this kind of thing as opposed to this is what the recipe says i'm sticking to the recipe and you could learn from that of course like oh well the spirit or the entity did not come through as strongly right when i used very little but an aesthetic understanding is like in that moment no this isn't feeling right this doesn't have the right performance to it that's kind of how i'm distinguishing them more and more in my mind and i i tend to come back to an image and keeping that term open to what an image can be, not trying to define it too much, but more imagistic thinking is also more aesthetic thinking, right? In magic and in art and in so many things. Wow, that was a really amazing answer. Um, It was making me think about how the image almost acts as a bridge between the mythic and the material, and that whatever image we have representing even like you're saying these rational concepts are all founded in some sort of mythic or image understanding and whatever our understanding of that image is how we rationalize the data and so in that way it really can create immense change when our images of certain things or our mythos image changes, then the reality of the world, physical world we live in changes. I believe so. And that's like, if you're going to, if you're going to give it an order, that's the order that I tend to work from what you just described, or I tend to think about it, um, both in practice and in thought. And if you're going to do, and we all do it, or at least people in astrological Western magical discourse do it, this like planetary sphere model, right? It's it's useful to the extent that we still use it. Obviously, we can be critical of it, and many of us are, but I tend to work from the moon down or the moon up. I don't like the up and down thing really as much, but the moon is very imagistic. The moon is is reflective and in that way dealing with images. And so much of what I do is is through uh, lunar mansions and, and stars, which are the moon and stars are also very much connected. But um, working from the moon out is perhaps a better way to put it. So the moon being imagistic, then from there... Um, coming from a more mercurial place, which is the articulation of the image or of the mythological, as you said. So you could even think about it in like um, in a more, I guess, philosophical lens of like the the image precedes the articulation with with language, with number, with quantity, right? Isn't it the case in Jyotish mythology that Mercury is the child of the moon? Yes. And I think what you're talking about right now is is maybe why that myth gets put in there, huh? <laughs> oh, love right? that. Yep. Yeah, the yeah. 
Yeah, that's a, that's a that's a great example. That's a really really great example. And I the the example that I use mythologically is in uh, Mesopotamian myth and Sumerian myth, where the the moon also precedes the sun is is ontologically prior to the sun in that way. The moon deity um, being the most central, which we you know we we tend to reverse. Oftentimes, we see the the sun is like the center of it all, um, but also the the moon and another reversal that's happened, or just a different way of looking at it rather than reversal. But um, we tend to see the the moon as more feminine, quote unquote feminine, whatever the heck that means. But uh, and the and the sun is more masculine, but it was also um, the other way around with uh, Mesopotamian thought. And in Egyptian thought as well, you know, the moon was very phallic and generative in a phallic way, um, and the the sun oftentimes more, quote unquote, feminine. I I, I don't like the terms. I, I still struggle with them, but we use them, you know. Yeah. I totally understand. I try to tell people we should just be using um like constrictive and expansive, and just leave it at that. Because, yeah, I think every planet has a mix of both. Like, because, yeah, in in Geotish and in Kabbalah, the moon is a, more of a penis. Um, and then in Japanese mythology, uh, Amaterasu is the sun goddess. Exactly. So it is different depending on... And that just goes back to what you were saying about aesthetics and, like, the... The image being the message because whether we view the energy of these planets as being expansive or constrictive changes the way that we interact with them in our own lives. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and the image is in itself androgynous. You know, it, it, it is both sides and um, the image precedes, once again, the splitting that Mercury oftentimes represents, the splitting into two. Yeah, and it's actually, now you mentioned it, no accident that Mercury, the one viewed as being the most non-binary, is representative of the image, the meanings we put in images. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I love that. So cool. That's yeah, a really good example, the... The child of the moon. Yes. Totally. Yeah. Yes. And now that, uh, see, because I just was reading The Greatness of Saturn by Robert Svoboda because we're reading it in my book club. And in the beginning of it, he gives stories for each of the other planets before you get to Saturn. And I was trying to think, like, what is this myth trying to teach me? And then here you come on my podcast and kind of in this mercurial fashion, wordsmith the the story to me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what I I when I when I spoke with our mutual friend Sasha Ravitch recently, we were talking a lot of, about her astrological practice and oftentimes you observe a thing and then someone will be like, oh, and this is where it was dictated by the ancient astrological author, or you see it in the mythology or whatever, you know, you have an observation and then someone comes along and says, oh, actually, like, did you know about this or where this ancient author wrote about this thing? And 
I love having those experiences because it reminds me of just that, our connection to the image and our ability as diviners, as artists to tap into image and only then later find out like, okay, tradition has spoken to this thing, but actually we are all tapped into that imagistic wellspring. Oh, you know, I love that. we don't we don't only have to study tradition to derive these meanings. That is in in some ways, this is going to sound super awful, but that, that is kind of the ex, exoteric approach. If you're wholly relying on that, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think especially as more magicians and occultists place these emphasis on behave like what's the term research-based occultist I'm a research-based occultist it's like okay does that mean that you've completely removed the probability of UPG being relevant and especially because I do have an academic background I do come from a research background that is one thing that I constantly have to challenge myself as a magician and I think those moments that you and Sasha were referring to is also in a way kind of our spirit guides coming in to hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Intuition is a thing that you can use. It's okay to have your own opinions on things. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's... That it's something that I think we all struggle with. And I've been I've been pretty down on on UPG quite a bit, even in an open way. And I'm like, should should I have been so down on it? Like, I don't think that's fair because in all reality, I think I probably use it way more than I'm willing to recognize, especially as an artist, because one one more reason per what we were talking about at the beginning, like why I think the arts and aesthetic thinking needs to be um, more openly discussed in, in magical circles as well is because um, approaching magic in that way allows you to, I think, tap into that wellspring in, in, a, in a much more fluid way right? Like it, it, it gets you more comfortable with dealing in those kinds of ambiguities. The same way you'd look at a very abstract painting and be able to like describe it, talk about it, how is it making you feel? Um, you are you are receiving an image or you're looking at an image, let's say in divination, a spread of cards, you're looking at a grouping of stars. And instead of just referring to what a book wrote about that, if you have that aesthetic training and comfortable with aesthetic approach and comfort with aesthetic approaches, can like, okay, I am I'm in, in an ambiguous situation. I don't have a, you know a dictated, text which is going to tell me how to interpret this thing how can i then come to my own hermeneutics my own interpretation of this without necessarily referring to what has been written in my mind that is almost one in the same as what we call aesthetics or reckoning with an aesthetic way of being so I, I just think in that same manner it's also very useful and practical aesthetics are not this like um, you know, this exercise in a lack of utility, right? There's a strong utility there. Um, that's perhaps some bias of our culture, but I think it should be looked into further and utilized more for, for very practical ends. Whether you're a diviner, whether you're someone who is going through these strong visualization processes, so you can 
better, you know, get in touch with that wellspring and begin to move beyond simply just referring to research, as you said, or a more academic approach or wholly relying on that. Obviously, we're all kind of moving back and forth between these different modalities, but to be wholly reliant upon it, I think, is is a, is a limitation. Oh, yeah, I completely agree. Uh also have totally fallen into that category of bashing UPG, which I think comes from reading a lot of 18th century, like Golden Dawn era occultists and being like, where did you get this information and why are you so historically wrong? Um, (laughs) True. Yeah. But they're not, that's the weird thing is you'll read it and you'll be like, wait, there are real nuggets of ins- like inspired truth within these lies. And is that not mercurial magic in and of itself? Yeah. Ugh, lo- and I love how you're referring to this wellspring of images, like the subconscious, collective unconscious. Is that what you're talking about when you say this like well collective wellspring? Yeah, yeah, we we use a lot of different names to refer to it. I I refer to it as the imagination more than anything else. And even that means so many things to so many people. Like I'm I'm using that word to structure the podcast that I started recently and have used it to talk about so many of the things I'm interested in, but still most people think of imagination as closer to what we call fantasy or like you imagine that and that equates to an unreality but when i once again for the clarification of terms which uh, i'm not always good at doing um for the sake of clarification i am referring to imagination as actually the most real thing that there is Mm. oh love that that wellspring as actually the underlying reality of everything, this like this ground of reality, if you will, I refer to as the imagination. A lot of that comes from my engagement with the work of Ibn Arabi, then brought um, articulated and um, the, the, the big exegesis of that happening in the West, uh, or at least my particular preference the more mystical and scholarly preference of the work of Henri Corbin, who refers much to the uh, the mystical imagination as this liminal in-between point. And this, this in-between, this liminal space rubbing between, um, let's say, material reality and the realm of pure thought is actually the most real thing that there is, the wellspring of everything else. So when I say imagination, um, collective unconscious, collective subconscious realm of archetype, sure. I I think it's pretty close to when people use that terminology as well. But also, I'm not referring to the what often gets referred to as the fantastical or the unreal, but actually the most real. Love that. I love that. I mean, it's like what we were saying at the beginning of the interview, our understanding of the mythic and of images, or as you're saying, how we engage in imagination, that is what informs the way that we interact with the material world, not the other way around. It sounded like a big part of what you're talking about 
is this need to be able to express aesthetics through language is maybe a part of what brought you to being interested in things like Star Lore or working with the Lunar Mansions? Like, what is what was your progression there? Like, artist to astrologer to magician. <laughs> in, in short, I'm I'm not entirely sure. Been been trying to think about it more and more going over the past decade of my life or so because it seems like in the past 10 years I've really seen those that that constellation of like identities and interests forming when it comes to my relationship with star stuff I wish that I had a more romantic story around it like I did some kind of crazy fast tripping in the desert under the night sky kind of thing and like that's how I discovered the stars it's not really it's actually nothing like that um I I think <laughs> I think that my my beginnings with the stars was from a much more systematic approach I definitely have a strong background in my late teens in a lot of the hermetic material with uh Crowley and and all of that kind of stuff and then getting more into astrology from that point on but from a really systematic theoretical approach of looking at charts on my computer and studying it from that angle which in thinking about that and I, I've I've written a little bit on it um, in an article that's coming out the Hadian press uh, fifth conjure codex, the black edition on the Milky Way, and the the Sufic idea of the the black light or the Nur Aswani. Um, so get get that when it comes out if you want to hear more about this. But uh, for me, seeing that my engagement with astrology and with the stars began and still is in many respects. Um, based in these theoretical models that don't have to do with direct observation, you know, because I've been living in cities for most of my life as well, which is something perhaps worth talking about. But um, in thinking about that, I have mused on how much of astrology is based in the darkness, based in like the dark space between the stars and between the visible planets in the the theoretical constructs of of our mind and of our collective minds wherein uh, mo most of these systems are not only based on mathematics for one but also in geometry this kind of thing but also based on just theoretical constructs that have uh, aggregated on the tradition over time that people continue to use and then consequently end up working for people so they stick. But none of that or very little of that is actually based around um, like, oh, that is that is a planet up there and I am directly communicating with it in this way. I'm like, you know, speaking with the with the entity that i'm looking at right up there so much of at least western astrology is not in that 
worldview or frame of thought any longer. So there's a lot of reckoning with that with me that it didn't feel really all that magical to begin with, but actually it sort of is because it's, it's an astrology of the darkness in between stars or something like that. Like, um, that the, all the, all the stuff that happens in between the, uh, the punctuated points that we tend to talk about so much in astrology. It's like, why aren't we talking about all the math that goes into this? Or why aren't we talking about all the computer software that we're so reliant on for this now? Like, where is the magic of any of that? Like where, how is, how is that related to this? So I, I, I really started out with all of that stuff. And then really in the past, three or four years, I would say, I've become much more inclined towards just straight up observational astrology. And living in the city that for me has been, I, I recently recounted on the same show I mentioned I did with Sasha, where in the, the room in New York City that I was living in last, I had this octagon window and I kind of had a really free form divinatory practice wherein I would just, I would get a whim to look up in the window and see what star happened to be framed by the window at that time. And that was exactly what I needed to see in that moment. That was like the augury, if you will. And um, this really like free form in the city, you can't really see much of the sky. And I live in New York City, so it's like the city of the city, right? Um, you can't really see much of the sky most of the time. So it's like what when you look out the tiny crack of the sky that you can see, what are you seeing, right? And you using what's available to you to to make astrological direct observation work for for your purposes for your own relationality with what you're looking at uh, and i think that like squeezing effect that happens in the city is actually its own beautiful thing right a lot of people romanticize the whole thing of like oh i just have to get out to the place where i have free observation of everything it's like no let's like what happens when there's a little bit of tension here right like what happens when the the human made stars the street lamps and the the lights of the city at night and everything are then squeezing out in this tense uh, position of like the the extra human the non-human up there in the sky and what are we observing in this interstitial place in between right that's how i've found my like city observation practice over the past few years to so like i don't know it's 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 a beautiful thing for me and it's like born out of that struggle and tension right rather than like a a sense of puritanism or romanticism on on either end of it like purely theoretical i'm just looking at my computer screen or purely like i have to be off in the wilderness and no no city lights for me whatsoever that doesn't exist for me i'm like i really like that tension in between um that's focusing on a lot of the astrology i i guess like how that relates to art and all of these other things you mentioned i don't know if we want to like clarify in the questions more i can keep talking but um that was a lot <laughs> no i loved it i really loved it it was making me think about because you're talking about the aesthetic 
of the city as an archetype, which in and of itself, this aesthetic creates the sensation of a character. And then the city now becomes its own spirit. It becomes its own genus loci. And you can feel it, like you were talking about, that aesthetic invokes feeling. You can feel it and then therefore interact with the city through that through that medium of aesthetic. It was it was making me think about the movie Stalker, the Tchaikovsky movie Stalker. Great film. Yeah, totally. amazing. But if you watch it, you'll notice the city is a character in that film. And I say that because of the fact that the camera is always so far back from the characters that you have these like wide scenes where the lighting and the the random bits of trash or like that locomotive is taking up more of the scene than the characters were meant to be watching. And in that way, the environment is a part of the story. It is mm. making that mythos along with the humans who are living and interacting within it. Absolutely. And I, I'm just going to go on a, a little... Uh, mini uh, tangent with stalker i watched um like a behind the scenes making of what was happening when the film was being made and i guess it was i think the most challenging film that tarkovsky ever did just in terms of the setting where they filmed it and they had so many problems with the filming of it um the least of which being all of the radiation on the site that they filmed it it's like heavy amounts of of radiation and i i think po a lot of people were like exposed to poison and, and things like that i'm thinking like okay you know the, the city in terms of interacting with the extra human world people think about it as like a poisonous environment to that mm -hmm. right like whether it's the pollution or the noise of the city like that's why people try to leave the city to interact with those kinds of things. But I think there's something to be said, like you said, for like the, the poison and the frustration that comes from being poisoned a little bit or the minor bits of exposure to poison that you get and how that can frame something through through challenge, right? It's not an easy framing. It's not something that's just going to give it to you, but it's also going to, um, I think, allow you to focus in a way where you're under pressure, allow you to focus in a, in a manner that's going to build a more solid practice because you are, are coming up against, you know, that, ra that radioactivity, mm -hmm. right? Of, of the city, the, 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 the poison and the waste and the, and the chatter and all of that. That's insane that that happened because it only goes further to show that the environment was absolutely a living entity. That it wasn't even just the way that the camera was shot. Each and every one of the actors were being personally affected by this environment. Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. I, I also watched a really interesting documentary on uranium and uranium enrichment, enrichment, which speaks to that same sort of thing. And like traditional sites, indigenous sites in Australia, where these scientists go and study these different things, which I think many of them are now off limits for mining. 
but you know the many of the indigenous people being like no there are very dangerous beings which will destroy you if you disturb them here in this way like we have our own version of that in the city in its own in its own capacity all kinds of places have that sort of thing the the danger and the potential for being poisoned by the living being which is like a poisonous flower or like a poison a rattlesnake or something you know it's beautiful but it is its own being which oftentimes is telling you do not do not step on me, do not consume me, do not eat me. But in that interaction, you know, so much can be born from that if you are respectful, if you are, you know, finding ways around so you're not uh, treading too, you know, roughly on on their particular terrain and whatnot. It's it's that whole living engagement. It's a it's a different way of looking at it. And I agree with you that it's also a very aesthetic way of looking at it too. I'm thinking about framing things, right? As if you were to frame a painting, as if you were to uh, show something in a gallery to frame a piece of art. You know, what's interesting to me about what you just said is depending on what your personal mythos narrative for poison is, it could either, like, there is a potential for poison to be synonymous with medicine, depending on what your mythos narrative is. And in that way, Absolutely. how is the city trying to heal you? And if you're phrasing your questions like that, based off of the mythos narrative you're telling yourself, that can maybe be an antidote to city living depression as, as you're describing it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I... I, I couldn't agree with that more. And I, I tend to, that tends to be my mythos. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's how I, that's how I look at it. So Absolutely. that being said, in what way do you feel like your environment and living within the mythos of, of New York City has changed or maybe not changed or informed and affected your relationship with Star-Lore? Like maybe if you were living in the in the Carpathian forest, your mythology of these stars might be different than living in New York City. Oh, that's a really, really great question. I love that. Um, I so first off, there are different parts of the city where you are going to be able to more easily observe stars in general. Um, the part of the city I used to live in in uh, Brooklyn in the south of Brooklyn is closer to the water so there are less lights there but there there is also greater access to the eastern horizon right to the eastern and uh, horizons in general and places where there's water and the thing that you get with water as well uh, are reflections which when you're thinking about stars, um, reflections are important in the way the night sky is reflecting on the water, as well as I said, the different street, li street lights and things like that, which are also, especially in New York, reflected in the water and are their own kinds of stars. They're the, the human uh, earthbound stars in that way. I don't, I don't make that distinction that the stars are only up there and and uh, i don't i also don't turn to crowley's notion of we are all stars either to necessarily say that either i just look at it visibly that looks like a little star right um 
these different luminosities. So there's different parts of the city where certain stars and parts of the night sky are more easily observable as well as horizons. Um, and then where I'm at right now, uh, it's the build, the buildings are taller and I'm in an apartment, which is higher up. So I am more predisposed here to see the more northerly stars and I've noticed that as well in looking out my window that I tend to see stars like Vega, for example, um, stars in uh, Andromeda and the more um, Arcturus stars that are further north, closer to the North Pole. Uh, and that also reflects my location in the city, my physical presence in the building that I'm at as well. So I, I think my first answer to that is very much through my own personal experience and where I've moved around with within the city. I also want to, and maybe this is not, maybe this is going to sound uh, much more uh, ambiguous and uh, a little more open to interpretation or a lot more open to interpretation, but I'm also beginning to see the different constellations within the city itself, whether it's in borough, the different boroughs and how constellations are not only reflected in the people who make up those boroughs, but also the architecture and the landscape itself, wherein, for example, people talk about Staten Island as like, or actually people don't talk about Staten Island. <laughs> no offense if you're from Staten Island or live there. I'm, I'm sorry, but uh, a lot of New Yorkers have a lot of negative things to say about Staten Island. It's also the much more conservative borough and suburban borough and everything else. And it's separated by water as well. So you could think of like the, the constellations, which um, even you know, parts of Capricorn and, uh, and, and, and beyond to the Great Sea, which uh, take on a more conservative element and are separated by greater darkness in the night sky, it's being like that part of the city. And so you're beginning to see how the night sky is then reflected back into the city layout itself. And through the imagination, you're making these connections. But this isn't even a far-flung thing in the same way that people like map the Giza plateau, right? to the, to the stars and people talk about how the great pyramids are aligned with Orion and Cygnus and however many 10,000 books have been written about all that stuff. But yeah, I, I think it's a really great question. And I think I'm in that process of like, okay, where are the stars mapping onto the city itself and you know what parts of the city are more like certain parts of the sky whether that's the people or the landscape or the proximity to water or that kind of thing but also i think being in such a heavily city environment it has per what we've been talking about really i think force is a strong word but sort of squeezed me into finding more creative and resourceful ways of actually just looking at stars period right like oh, how how am i gonna see this thing okay where can i go how can i navigate in this maze just to see something you know what i mean and that that that's that's training you in becoming more resourceful in itself and also as you said interacting with that with the land that you're on those PowerPoints, everything else. So do you feel then like 
similarly to how the lunar mansions are kind of different faces that the moon wears, that the stars can maybe, even if they're a, a fixed star, for example, that its face can change depending on where you are located when you're looking up at it? I do. That tends to be the approach that I take. And, and anything having to do with the moon and stars for me is that way. Like it's, it's so personal. It's so embodied. And the astrological interpretation of the moon is, is of that same nature. It's like the personal psyche in geotish it's more of the mind um and then western stuff it tends to be like the actual physical body and uh, emotions and that sort of thing um so i that's one of the things i love about the lunar mansions and the stars is that it's so like where are you observing them from and what is the local star lore what is the star lore of your ancestors um i i think that my my peers and friends Chris and Elodie at the the lunar they have their lunar zodiac project have been um, really great in talking about these kinds of things embodied qualities of the lunar mansion they work much with the material in the Greek magical papyri which is referring to the different mansions through these like animal forms and through the auspices of Hecate and these different Hecate like uh, beings, you know, the, the dog and the serpent, the key, so on and so forth. But um, yeah, I, I like thinking about the lunar mansions and the stars as these different animal forms, which is right. This speaks to the embodiment of it, speaks to the here and now, the land that you're on. Like, oh, this this dog, which this black dog, which ran across you at the crossroads or ran in front of you at the crossroads, that is the star Sirius, right? And that is the lunar mansion nearest to Sirius, this kind of thing. I love it that your cat just like entered the the frame <laughs> when I was talking about that. Um, She's, is somebody talking about dogs when they should be petting me? <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, there's cats there too. <laughs> but the, the, the Zodiac also comes from that. That's why it's called the Zodiac, right? We've become pretty detached from that. But the circle of animals, um, it's the same kind of thing. Like it's, it's observation from where you are, what land you're on. And absolutely, yes, I take that wholly into consideration and I think frankly everyone should yeah I'd never thought about the fixed stars wearing different masks similarly to like the way that the moon has different masks but when you were talking about Staten Island kind of being separated by water and like what stars you might see when you look up there the way that the water might affect and reflect specific aspects of the star lore. That was very profound in my mind because it opened up this possibility for even the fixed stars to present multiplicity, mm. which that word fixed makes you want to not give it that quality, but... Totally. And I, the ancient belief was so much that, like where the term comes from of like that, that layer of the celestial sphere was the most fixed. We could like rely on it the most in that way in its fixity. I'm like, I don't know about that. Like I, yes and no, like, you know, 
disregarding procession of the equinoxes, which is hard dis to disregard, obviously, uh, but I'm going to disregard it, this distinction between tropical and sidereal. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. And I think, and this is maybe a really good entry point into how I view it with artwork and, and my art practice, but the, the fact that stars are just little, you know, little dots, little shiny dots on this great uh, black, you know, uh, tapestry that is the night sky and how many different cultures have had so many different interpretations of what those little dots mean in their mythology and their beliefs and their folklore. Many of those beliefs being very similar, of course, not to say that different cultures have all had very differing views about that. Many have been remarkably similar. It's one of the reasons all the conspiracy people get so into this stuff. They're like, you know, how are, how does so many different cultures, which were never supposed to speak with each other, have so many different beliefs? But that's its own thing. Um, I, I am still fascinated by the fact that we as human beings, in this way we like look at um, you know, water or wood or whatever and see images in it. I'm forgetting the name for that. There's a scientific name for like seeing faces and in things like wood and, and bread. And yeah, <laughs> I know what you're talking about, but I don't. You, get, yeah. you know what I'm talking about. Um, but the, the human, and this is where it links in with imagination, right? But the human capacity for that and how we look up at these just little dots in, in the black night sky and make all of these connections. We do the constellating and some, and some cultures don't even do the constellating in the way we think about it. In a lot of um, Southern hemisphere cultures and the Australian Aboriginal culture, as well as in um, many of the indigenous uh, Incan South American cultures, they see constellations in the dark patches of the night sky as well which is something a lot of people don't talk about so it's not just connecting lines between stars it's also like oh what are these shadow forms in the sky as well in particular around the milky way but in general you know cultures seeing images and connecting these different forms visible in the sky to me this is what art is doing as well so i can do it with staten island i can do it with my landscape i can do it with a map of new york city and i can also do it as like okay i have a blank canvas and there's a random set of dots or i can jackson pollock it and like sprinkle random bits of paint and ink or whatever or i can just like scratch a few lines with a pen onto a blank page and then through the imaginative process, I can start uh, maybe connecting those dots if I want, or I can um, add some more ink and some more water to a little black shadowy patch and make that a, even a bigger patch. And that patch can form into something that looks like a little shadow play of animals or figures and silhouettes and all this kind of thing. I, I'm doing that with artwork and with painting, and we can also do that with music and uh, non-visual art as well. Um, but we're also doing that with the sky as individuals as we've been talking about and as cultures and 
it's showing up in our mythology and in our folklore in that same way. So that connection for me between the way we do that with the sky, as well as the way we do that in our creative practice and in our life, this act of constellating through the imagination, to me, those two things line up because they're essentially the same in my mind. So in that way, art and sky observation are pretty much the same practice for me at the end of the day. That's that's how those things line up in my life, in my practice. Um, and I do believe that they are one and the same process-wise. Love that. Oh, I love that. And this made me want to ask another question, which I apologize if it does involve more defining of terms. Hopefully you and everybody else will just understand why I'm asking this question, but do you feel like what you're just describing, this art uh, or this idea of creating like just a visual piece of art, like canvas and paint, doing it through this process of constellating in the same way that you are building this magical mythos of of your relationship to the stars is that not divination in your mind like is that the same thing as divination to you it is yeah. <laughs> it is it totally is and uh, b- uh, both of us being very steeped in divinatory practice. I know this is something we wanted to talk about. And yeah, I absolutely feel that it is. And I think that is the way that we can begin to be more aesthetic in our divinatory practice and vice versa, right? Like whether it's a, a spread of cards, which are images, even if you're reading playing cards, there's still images. Um, and I also believe that numbers and letters and words are images. Some people make that distinction. Once again, for the clarification of terms, like some people don't see that as the same thing. I do. Um, but yeah, whether it's a spread of cards on the table before you or whether you know, it's a sortilege and you're looking at uh, bones and dice and little fragments and beads and bits of things, or whether you're looking up at the night sky, that is what I believe we're doing as diviners, as artists, we are constellating. And diviners oftentimes using that, the narrative structure right? So there's the constellation that's happening through narrative. You begin to tell a story in your divination. You're sitting with a client and you're telling them the story that you're seeing about their life or their situation unfolding before you, or whether you're looking up the sky. And you see this more pronounced in the older, older astrologies, like uh, Bernadette Brady talks a lot about this um, in her more star-based astrology of um, getting into the Mesopotamian omen system, like when the, you know, when the old man is uh, nearing the star of the wolf in the place of the field of corn, you know, the king will, <laughs> this kind of thing, or, you know, the, the populace will experience this kind of thing. It sounds more like a, a narrative uh piece or a poem or something like that so i i think the roots of astrology are there i think you see it in a lot more uh, indigenous uh, forms of astrology in mesoamerica for sure um 
and then yeah and write a spread of cards in front of you you know the 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 emperor is facing this direction at this court card what have you uh and this is the story that is unfolding for your client for you whoever it may be so but in in that same vein because i guess the reason why i asked this question is because i feel like a lot of people think that divination is the same as being an oracle which i actually view as being two different things like oracleizing the future is different than being able to peer beyond the material into that mythic imaginal space and is that not what all artists are doing anyway is peering beyond that veil and bringing it into the material there are definitely distinctions to be made and i I, I tend to suffer from not making them, <laughs> but ab- I mean, absolutely. I think I was just talking with my partner yesterday. We were having a pretty deep conversation on, because I, I'm in the process of uh, about to go into grad school for art and art education. And so I'm thinking about art processes a lot and the way different people make art. Um, which you could also, per our conversation, say the way different people divine, <laughs> right? Um, so if we're talking about those things as being similar processes, but then talking about distinctions there, there are people who divine in different ways. There are people who make art in different ways. The one we were touching on earlier, that there are people, astrology in particular, I see it less i think with card reading but astrology in particular where people divine wholly based on what has been written in the texts mm-hmm. what 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 does the tradition have to say about this placement and um as as much as it sounds like i i poop on that all the time i really have no problem with that it's not i'm I don't have a gripe with that. I, I think it's limited, which is, as I referred to it earlier, I think it's just limited. And personally, for me, I want to see people be more imaginative in all of their practices. That's just my own whatever hill to die on. But <laughs> it's it's just limited. I don't actually have a gripe with it or think that there's something inherently wrong with that. So there's people who do that wholly, right? Or in card systems, like they subscribe to a certain system or a certain book that certain cards and combinations of cards mean a certain thing. And there's, in my mind, also nothing wrong with that as well. Um, and people do that with art too. People don't think so, but I mean, especially contemporary art is very much can be in this sort of this is going to sound a little insulting, but more of a didactic. The word didactic can be a little insulting for people. It doesn't have a great uh, connotation, but a lot of contemporary are being very didactic in that way. It's like based on different political discourses that are happening, social events that are being um highlighted at the moment once again nothing wrong with that but it's just a different way of of making art so there's that approach and then even in more of the like i'm channeling something other uh, a great example that i uh, 
heard on a podcast I really love called Weird Studies. They were talking about more of a, a Jungian approach to art creation, and they were making the Apollonian-Dionysian distinction, uh, talking about two filmmakers, Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. Stanley Kubrick being more what we'd call an Apollonian artist, wherein um, the control of form is, is much more tight you know, every single bit has to be tightly controlled and regulated in this way. And David Lynch is a much more Dionysian filmmaker where it's like whatever is just coming through, flowing through the intuitive image is what's happening. And that's what we're putting to film. Um, but bo both artists allowing things to come through and artists in general who are channeling things work coming from other places other beings but different ways of dealing with that almost possessory response or, or possessory act that is the creative act you know someone like lynch being much more of like it's just flowing through and whatever comes out comes out but kubrick being like something's flowing through but it's more like this highly regulated dam mm -hmm. of flow you know what i mean to the point that in that regulation he might even be lost to the fact that something is coming through and feel that it is coming solely from himself or from his ego and i think the same thing also applies to divination right like there are people who it's more i guess oracular i think oracular is a fair word to use where it's like it's just something coming through like the pythoness and in in greek i guess that's apollo also but there's something just coming through and it's uh, it, it simply is whatever it is, this riddle, this oracle. And then there's some who are like, there's something definitely coming through, but they have a very systematic way of regulating what is coming through, right? And those are also two ways that diviners work as well, in my observation. Has that been your experience? Wow. No, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And, and I wish that I could say that I was more Dionysian, like I, but I'm not, I know I'm not, I have to just admit that I'm not. <laughs> Everyone wants to be more Dionysian, <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> We're all pretty Apollonian anyways, yeah. Right, yeah. But I love this thinking of David Lynch now as the crying and conquering child, I think is, yeah, I can see that <laughs> for sure. <laughs> totally. Well, this has been an amazing conversation filled with so much insight and just absolutely adored your little nuggets of wisdom about art. And I agree with you. It's not people don't talk about the intersection between art and magic and divination enough. And I'm just thrilled to have had you on here to give us some insight into that. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. I love talking about these things. And it helps me to talk about these things. I'm one of those people that I have to have discuss it to learn more about it. So thank you for having me. You're so welcome. Um, before I let you go, I always like to ask my guests, final question uh, is really just your final thoughts. Do you have anything that you would feel remiss if you didn't tell the audience or leave them on these last notes? Well, I, 
I think it's important to mention that we are doing, we're undergoing this process of being interviewed uh, together. We're undergoing this process together, and this is sort of a swap cast thing that's happening. And um, I... This, this was the first one, and I really love the direction that it's going. And the conversation we're having now, I'm sure, is going to inform the next conversation that's coming. And that's exactly what I love about all of this. So less of like a question that I'm going to answer and more of a really enthusiastic comment of like, yay to this whole process of talking about these great things and then learning more about them in the discussion of them. I think that's the best thing about the podcasting medium and what it can do, what it's capable of. And I'm just really excited about it and thank you for doing what you do yeah thank you thank you for noticing that that this was a socratic discussion and that's what i'm i'm all about here exactly exactly (laughs) if you are listening to this you should head over and listen to these the i guess sister episode that we're having on jay's podcast and I'm going to link, put a link to it in the description box of this episode. So you should just be able to click right on over. Excellent. Yay. All right. Well, I will see you in about five minutes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. See you soon. 